Hey guys, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Hope you guys are doing good and staying sane amidst what is turning out to be the craziest time of our lives. I hope that you've given yourself some space to maybe cry because I've cried a couple times just mourning the old world and the unknown. It's a scary time right now. So I feel for you. You have my support. In 2015, I went on this month-long road trip with a group of my friends. We started at Smith Rock by doing this crazy rope swing space net project where we jumped out of this space net and did this huge rope swing through a canyon. It was crazy. We went to the Redwoods and we went to California and did some skydiving, all kinds of stuff. We ended up in Moab, Utah at this highlining and base jumping festival that's called GGBY, which stands for Gobble Gobble Bitches Yeah. That is over Thanksgiving and hence the funny name. But simultaneously is happening what they call the Turkey Boogie, which is a base jumping gathering there in Moab. Moab, Utah, if you aren't familiar, is just the most perfect place to highline and base jump. There are huge cliffs everywhere, sheer sandstone, and it's just an incredible place, especially in the fall. The weather is usually clear and nice for the most part, and we had a bunch of things going on. There's a huge community, say maybe 200 people who are coming together to make all kinds of high lines and space nets. Space nets are these like woven nets that basically go out on these high lines so that you can basically crawl around in this little monkey net 400 something feet off of the ground and people base jump off of it and we did rope swings off of it and all kinds of stuff. But right away I noticed one base jumper that was particularly positive, particularly talented, as well as really inclusive. He had a great sense of community and we hit it off right off the bat. This guy's name is Matt Blank, and today I have an interview with Matt. In this interview, Matt talks about radical self-reliance. He talks about the importance of having a tight-knit community for our emotional well-being, which is becoming ever more important in a time like this. And we talk about a number of things. Matt is a really thoughtful person. He's highly intelligent, and I appreciate this talk so much. I know you guys are going to love it. If you like this podcast, please share it, subscribe, leave a review. That really helps. Also consider donating. That's paypal.me slash air. I appreciate all the people who have donated. Donate whatever feels good, my friends. And I've got a bunch of great stuff coming up. Without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my talk with my friend, Matt Blank. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So um, I know before we started recording, we talked about kind of these different concepts. And one that was really interesting to me was this notion of radical self-reliance. So would love to hear your perspective on radical self-reliance from the perspective of base jumping and all your other life experiences in it. Sure. And uh, just so I'm on the same page as you, we were talking about radical self-reliance as a, um, as a part of resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And we want to get into like, yeah, I think we're all looking for resilience right now. Gotcha. So um, sure. I will get into radical self-reliance. 
I would love to talk about how it relates to resilience and um, I've been uh, doing some thinking about that. So um, totally. Yeah. Take so it radical self-reliance is a term uh, that I got from Burning Man. And it, uh, it's one of the components that makes a resilient community. Uh, if everyone brings enough for themselves and doesn't need to lean on anybody else, uh, then there's more room for cooperation. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as a, a group or a community gets into a state of codependence, uh, there are a lot of pitfalls and uh, you'll see resilience of that community drop off substantially. Mm-hmm. So if we're like to uh, take the Burning Man approach to radical self-reliance, they say, you know, Burning Man encourages the individual to discover exercise and rely on his or her inner resources. Nice. In this way, um, everyone has what they need or has brought what they need and now can devote more towards the common goal, which is essentially the the purpose of a community or a group. Yeah. And I I love that idea. And I think that that is um, almost like our, in our social fabric that kind of translates as like when everyone has their needs met, we can collaborate better. We can work together more. Absolutely. Yeah. Once uh, somebody um, needs something from someone else, then that person's purpose becomes serving that other person, uh, which is cool in the short term, but for long-term resilience of a community, everyone would be better served working towards whatever common goal the community has, in which case we need to be driving towards self-reliance. And help differentiate self-reliance from just absolute individualism and like holding up in some rural cabin? Well, I mean, I guess there's both of those are radically self-reliant, but to what end, right? Mm-hmm. In the case that the person's out in the middle of the woods, their community is a community of one. And in that case, yes, they will need to be radically self-reliant in that community to accomplish the goal, which is survival. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case of Burning Man, I, a lot of that goal is to have fun, share art, um, you know, get into uh, emergent behavior and um, learn from one another. And, you know, there are, I mean, there are many, many different goals I could go on forever. But in that case, uh, if everyone comes as a radically self-reliant person with their own food and water and resources to maintain themselves, then all of those other goals can be served much better. Mm-hmm. In contrast, if everyone shows up and all they've brought is a costume, <laughs> then quickly that entire community will turn into, you know, a, uh, a crisis center. Totally. Totally. And I've never been to Burning Man, but I've heard that there's like, even it goes beyond self-reliance into like abundance where people bring not only enough for themselves, but enough to share for the entire time. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the gifting is another huge aspect of Burning Man. And in order to gift something, you also need to have all of your bases covered. So yeah. like when we bring our camp there, we gift uh, tandem skydives. And yeah. in order to give that resource to people, we also need to be completely self-reliant so that we're not a drain on the rest of the community and have the opportunity and space to give something over the top of what we need. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and I've yeah, made at the, the same time most yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say at the same time, most people bring more regular resources than they'll need as well, because they understand that uh their planning might be better than others. Mm-hmm. Um for an example, like if I'm a veteran burner, I know pretty exactly how much water I'll need for myself and others. If you're a first year burner, you might not know that so well. So you could skew a little bit and that's not your fault. You just don't have the experience. So it behooves the veteran burners to bring a little bit extra water in case that somebody gets out of sorts. And instead of being um, turned into a crisis, it's just um, an easy little fix. Oh, here's some extra water. I <laughs> go about your day and next time come back and do it better and uh, try and bring the appropriate resources. 
Yeah. And I've made this analogy for a long time that if you wanted to pull up on someone, you actually had to have your feet planted on something firm. And I think that's kind of the same idea that if you want to give, you have to first be in a position that you're uh, not in desperate need. And I think that in the times that we're facing right now in this epidemic, we're kind of, I think that what it, this conversation brings up for me immediately is the notion of radical self-reliance starts with preparing for yourself and your kin in a way that removes you from the list of casualties so that you can become part of the solution. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you. I think the uh, statement that I generally use is secure your mask before securing the masks of others. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. And simply stated like that one applies to all of our outdoor extreme sports. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've come trying to give a bunch, but you haven't covered yourself, you are much more likely to become a casualty and a drain on everyone around you. Uh, rather than like, if you just cover yourself and you don't have a whole lot to give, that's cool. Like as long as you don't become a liability, you are actually giving (laughs) just by not becoming a liability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talk to me about how this relates and how this manifests in base jumping and these other extreme sports. Um, Which part? The, just the notion of radical self-reliance. So uh, radical self-reliance and base jumping. Um, obviously, you'll need to be radically self-reliant in base jumping because it, at one <laughs> point, you're going to be completely reliant on yourself to save your own life. Yeah. And since you're in an area where there can be no mistakes and you are, uh, well, l- let me backtrack, not no mistakes, um, very few mistakes. Mm-hmm. And you will be in an, uh, in an a context in which no help can be given. Uh, radical self-reliance is a necessity. Yeah. yeah. If you jump off a cliff and expect somebody else to tell you when you need to pull, that's just not possible. So you need to be radically self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we take it to the extreme, since we are playing a game of death, the smart base jumper assumes that it is a possible situation that everyone that you're jumping with dies. Well, and in that case, what happens? Like, did you, where did you leave the keys to the car? Are they in somebody's pocket or are they with the car? How much water did you bring on the hike? Did you bring enough just to get there or did you bring enough to get there and then get all the way home in the case that, everybody on your jump dies and you need to walk all the way back. Yeah. It's a pretty dark, uh, dark thing to have to look at. Totally. But you know, if we're not looking at the possibilities like that, then we're unprepared. And if we're unprepared, then we are less resilient. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that that is a fact that is becoming painfully obvious through all of this, that there are dark possibilities in humanity that we shy away from, that we don't want to look at, and it leaves us unprepared. Like the reality of epidemic is just just time and time again throughout history has just come and gone. And our preparedness in America is just pretty lackluster. And I don't think we like to look at that kind of thing. And that's another thing when we talk about our climate and our impact, those are all kinds of what I would consider some kind of shadow aspect of our existence that we don't typically like to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a a common practice for people to, shy away from looking at things that are scary, yeah. which is interesting to me because in looking at those scary things, they become less scary because you can make moves to prepare and plan for them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the fear washes away and all of a sudden you become a much more resilient person. And these dark aspects that we're talking about 
don't be that they're not dark anymore. They're just, they just are. Yeah. So I think that I've noticed that in base jumping that typically the base jumping culture has this pretty blunt morbidity, this, um, macabre, this like affinity for the macabre, you know, and there's like, you know, it's kind of a blatant thing. And do you think that that protects base jumpers in the long run and how so? Okay. Well, uh, first of all, I really like that you brought up that we are a little bit macabre and, and totally, uh, we are. Um, I think if you can't find the humor in the situation, you're eventually going to get buried in the tragedy of it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is comical when you see it from a, a certain perspective, albeit it is also full of sorrow. Mm-hmm. So there's a fine line between, um, you know, accepting the death and making light of it. But in general, uh, I think all of us have a lighthearted perspective when it comes to life and death. Now, when we're talking about looking at death uh, in context of base jumping, my understanding is that everyone dies on every jump. And I'll explain that for a second. We jump off the cliff and if we don't do something, if action is not taken, death is assured, mm-hmm. which puts you at, at a weird, like, in a weird spot. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Schrodinger's cat experiment. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in Schrodinger's cat, right, there is a cat in a box and I'll give you, I'll give everyone the simple version. There's a cat in a box. There's a, a 50% chance that this cat is dead or alive uh, after a period of time. And now uh, the experimenter asks someone, is the cat dead or alive? And that's an unknowable question unless you open the box. But until you open the box, we have a choice to believe either that they're dead or alive. (laughs) So it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. And how it relates to base jumping is once we jump off the cliff, I would argue effectively we're neither dead nor alive. We're like in this in-between zone, you know, and in order to maintain life, we would have to look at the point at which we were assuredly dead. And then we'd have to make educated, aggressive decisions to maintain life. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, we have to be looking at the worst case scenarios all the time in order to be able to make those educated, aggressive decisions. Yeah, I've been quoting Will Gadd lately in his when he says the pos- the positive power of negative thinking, you know, like considering what is trying to kill him at every corner. Totally. Yeah, I've heard it also framed as the obstacle is the way. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and you're yeah, someone it's, who it's not. I mean, most base jumpers who are even moderately experienced have had people they know, if not their friends, if not their jumping buddies who have died doing the sport. Absolutely. So it does really put a a realistic point on, uh, on the perspective. I, I don't know a single person that's been in the sport more than a few years that doesn't either know somebody or seeing somebody personally die doing it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. And I think that is something that is unique about base jumping that helps, or it almost demands the culture to be macabre in that way, to be very, um, like very willing to look at the darkest possible outcomes and become, um, not necessarily comfortable with the outcome itself, but comfortable looking at it. And I think that as we see our own um, response to the virus, we see how we, we are somewhat squeamish collectively to look at the dark possible outcomes of our own existence. No doubt. <clears throat> I, I believe that the stages of loss are also 
present when we're talking about potential loss. So, you know, if, uh, if somebody is uncomfortable with loss and stuck in one of the earlier stages, like bargaining or anger or whatever, then they're going to shy away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you get to acceptance, it's easier to then move on to the next stage, which is work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other day I interviewed my friend, Dr. Annie, she's a psychologist and she kind of talked about this anticipatory grief that I think a lot of people are feeling right now and are not totally giving credence or space in their lives for this, like grieving things that they might lose, whether that's their health or their lifestyle. Yeah. I love that idea. I think that's something that is incredibly positive. Um, For instance, uh, when I was jumping with uh, my friend, Ian, uh, who has passed away jumping, uh, we contemplated what would happen in the case that either one of us died base jumping many times. And we were able to do that in a controlled environment together, speaking about all the, the feelings that might come up. And that's not something that you get to do after somebody's gone. And so having done that, after he did die, I felt like I was much more prepared for that incident because I had already gone through it with him. You know, if you're trying to go through loss as loss is happening, that's, that's the hardest situation. That's the most challenging. You know, but using your mind as a sandbox to create the loss, experience the emotions, think about what the possibilities would be when it eventually happens, you're much more resilient. Wow. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, what you're talking about, you guys wrote each other letters, right? That was uh, just a mission of mine. Um, I wrote letters to everybody uh, that was, was, it's going to be hard for me to put a qualifying word there. I wrote a lot of letters to people who I felt would need um, a, another note from me after I was dead. And that was just so that I could leave something behind for them. So they wouldn't be just abruptly, you know, the rug pulled out from under them. You know, if I were to, to leave, it was just another contingency plan of mine so that I could feel a little bit more comfortable assuming the amount of risk that I was mm-hmm. because you know, what a terrible thing it would be for somebody to, to leave. And then, uh, for you to be left with nothing other than the last interaction that you had, which might have been completely inconsequential, you know, like, uh, the, who knows, you know, just an everyday hello or goodbye. Yeah. That's such a profound thing. And I really just super respect that willingness and that thoughtfulness that is in you that, brings you to do something like that. And, um, for those people listening, this experience or part of the experience that you're talking about was brought into a wonderfully created film. We, when we were nights, right? Yeah, that's what it's called. It's uh, available on Vimeo and, uh, it was shot by a mutual friend of Ian and I's, uh, named, um, yeah, Anson Fogel, who is, uh, mm. Camp Camp 4 director, an incredible Mm -hmm. filmmaker, and just amazing human. Yeah, it is absolutely gut-wrenching and heartstring-pulling and goosebump-invoking, for sure. Thanks, I appreciate that. It was a challenge to make, but I'm really glad that we did. Um, I'd also like to add that I don't write letters to people like that anymore. Uh, after the experience of losing Ian, I felt that it was just better to tell everybody that I loved how I felt about him all the time, Mm. you know, and that's, it was a really, um, it was a really big motivator for me to leave relationships intact and without conflict and solve conflicts if they arose, uh, so that, 
you know, no further action or letter would be required. You know, mm -hmm. if for some reason, a bus hit me, you know, crossing the street, everyone could feel some kind of resolution already knowing mm -hmm. that we were on the same page and that we loved each other and uh, carry that forward. Yeah. And I think that willingness to look at all of the possible outcomes just even logically leads us to a position where we don't know when our time is up. We don't know how long we have. And so leaving every interaction in every relationship, every interaction as positive and resolved as possible becomes just a logical outcome of looking at all of the possible outcomes, no matter how dark. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I super love that perspective. I super love that perspective. I think that honestly, I, uh, you know, as we went into this conversation, I knew that there was going to be nuggets and I just feel like that's like a particular nugget that I almost just want to linger on that this preparedness of the mental exercise of preparedness, you know, like we're right now we're in a time where there's so much material preparedness that we're lacking. There's so much, um, training knowledge, just like procedural, all this stuff. But what you're talking about is almost just sheerly a mental cognitive preparedness through curiosity and exploration of the possible outcomes. And I think that's a really powerful, uh, tangible step for all of us. You know, we don't have to spend a bunch of money preparing or prepping or any of that. It's a cognitive thing that promotes resilience. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think very basically it's just deciding who you want to be in these moments of crisis. And then when they happen, sticking to that plan. Yeah. I think that panic is, is a natural state, you know, when there are so many unknowns thrown at you all at once, you know, you can see that in base jumping and flying where, you know, some emergency happens and people panic the most basic one I can think of is uh, a, a malfunction skydiving, you know, and, and people will hesitate to cut away from their malfunctioning parachute and open their, you know, relatively perfect reserve parachute because they're in a state of panic. Mm -hmm. They haven't conceptualized who they want to be and what they want to do in that situation when like all of that work is, is totally doable on the ground. Yeah, it's a, it's a, what you're talking about is one step beyond imagining and it's actually visualization, right? Like actually walking yourself through that situation. Yeah. Yeah. It's beyond visualization and making uh, defined choices and then accepting that you might be a person that uh, would panic and then trying to imagine a panic inducing situation and starting to reframe and practice a new pattern. Wow. And that's pretty powerful just idea right now as we face all kinds of myriad outcomes here to be able to, to harden ourselves, become more resilient, even just cognitively to these things without ever taking any step into material, procedural, anything. It's just like this cognitive um, practice. I love this. Right. Because who knows what we're going to do? You know, there might be in that particular situation, a thousand different choices, mm -hmm. but who we're going to be in that situation is easy. That's, there are not very many choices there, mm -hmm. right? Either you're going to be somebody who panics or you're going to be somebody who's overly anxious, or you're going to be somebody who is courageous. And those choices can be made far in advance of any kind of uh, crisis situation, regardless of what the crisis is, as long as you go to the limit of your emotional capacity and imagine how ter terrible all these things would be. And then imagine a person that could do those things and then practice to be that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of Lao Tzu saying better to be a warrior in the garden than a gardener in a war. 
I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So I love that idea. That's like a visualization and a mental preparedness to deal with all of the possible outcomes. That's just super profound. Let's move on. Let's, uh, you know, I saw a post that you made the other day of something that you were doing that was kind of procedural that was in small groups that was kind of building some emotional resilience in a time that we really need it. Tell me about that. So, um, what you're referring to is a post that I made on Facebook about a support group structure that we were trying out in our community. And before I go any further, I'd like to point out that this uh, particular structure was not my idea. It was uh, brought up by Ben Dicko, another uh, base jumper and extreme sports athlete. And he was the one that made the moves on creating this group. Although I am a firm supporter and always have been of uh, groups of this nature. So um, when we're talking about resilience, we're right here, we're talking about uh, resilience on a community level. And I think that there's a, interesting topics to discuss when we break up resilience um, into categories like individual resilience, community resilience, team resilience, relationship resilience, um, societal resilience, and cultural resilience. And here, when we're talking about the resilience of a community, um, I think a resilient community supports itself. And this was just one way in which we were um, trying to support each other. The group is simple. Uh, it's just a uh, Facebook group where in which if you need help, like if you're not feeling so great, you just post a thumbs down in the group. Then anyone in the group who has the resources to talk to you about whatever problem you're having, reacts to that thumbs down with a thumbs up. And then the whole group knows that somebody is uh, gonna connect with you and uh, they schedule a time uh, and a platform to communicate. And then after that, we delete the message and we move on. Hmm. I like that. And how's that been working? Excellent. It's been working excellently. Uh, I, I think the a big problem uh, for everybody is first being able to reach out simply. The harder it gets to reach out, uh, the less resourced you'll have to be before you actually press that button. Mm -hmm. Like if the barrier to entry to asking for help is that you need to make an appointment with a licensed therapist and go through a month of insurance uh, like communication in order to get that appointment, you're going to have to be feeling pretty terrible in order to spend that time. If all you have to do is post a thumbs down in a group and you get to talk to somebody, well, you won't be like, you won't be at wit's end at that point. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it's much easier for somebody to help. <clears throat> if you've only dipped below to 90% of your capacity, it's easy for any of us to bring you back up to a hundred. If you've dipped down to 5%, Oh boy. Like that means that it means like somebody has to be at like 195% of their normal capacity to get you back up. That's a rare person. For sure. Tell me about what, what's important with the size of that group. Well, we, uh, our group is uh, about 12 people now. Um, and uh, the size of the group is important because you need enough people for there to be adequate resources. For instance, if it were just you and me and one of us were having a problem, it's unlikely that the other person is both resourced and has the time and capacity to help at that given time. Mm -hmm. So we've got to have some kind of, um, we got to have a good pool. However, if it gets too large, the group becomes hard to manage and requires somebody to actually be an administrator of the group. Otherwise, uh, you know, you get into uh, problems with uh, the type of communication that's being thrown at the group or um, uh, potentially too many people putting in too much input all at once. 
which requires administration, mm-hmm. which now we have somebody working nonstop just to support the support structure, which that's, <laughs> that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think there's a social element there of like, if you have a small enough group that everyone is emotionally intimate with each other, uh, they're willing to post that thumbs down without really thinking too much about it. But if you get too big of a group where even one or two people in there, say it is a dozen, and there's one or two people in there that I don't really have a deep emotional intimacy with, that can, I think, keep me from posting that thumbs down when I ought. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like if you're... Um if you're advertising to your entire friends group that you're not feeling so hot, well, that, that could uh, engage a whole lot of people's um, judgment that you would not be prepared for or want. For sure. <laughs> and now ideally everyone in the group is completely non-judgmental and open-minded, you know, but <clears throat> that's also hard to be, uh, completely, you know, on that page, uh, in a world where we're all trying to get something done. You know, if, uh, I'm lining up a project that's about to travel to Nepal and I see that you post in our group that you're not feeling so hot, but I don't check back in. It's hard for me to then like go, Hey, all right, this person is going to be resourced to go on this trip, you know? And so you might be like, thinking like, oh, well, I might be giving up resources or opportunities if I post here. So it's, it's very important for everybody on that, uh, in the groups to maintain a non-judgmental platform as well as, uh, you know, leave their personal um, agendas aside when it comes to this and be very uh, clear that this is a, a compartmentalized, it's a, a free space that no other... Uh, values or agendas are going to be um, input. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's something that we, that we all consciously have to work at our own biases and our own, you know, when someone shares their problems with us, our own desire to be some kind of counselor or savior or give advice when we should just listen or, you know, answers before questions when it should be questions before answers is so prevalent. And as I had that conversation this morning with Rich Bartlett, the uh, founder of Lumio and Inspire, all these organizations that um, really hinge on their efficacy on group size, he actually talks about a couple different nested circles. The first being a nested circle, the relationship you have with yourself and all of the different parts of yourself. And then the second nested circle would be the dyad, like the one-on-one relationship. And then the next nested circle is what he calls the crew, which is that's between three and eight people. And the number he uses is, as eight is being like the amount of people you can have dinner with at a single table and still feel like unified. Um, and one of, as you talk about this, um, you talk about one of the bottlenecks, one of the barriers to entry here is this time resource. And it just brought up for me one of the interesting things that he's done to combat that is instead of needing scheduling, he's, he considers scheduling to be distracting in general. And so it's, um, they use just a rhythm a rhythm of connection that is like say the eight people have a explicit agreement that they connect once a month or if the group is four they connect you know once a week or something and it's like he's just using this rhythm to create the space as opposed to uh need which i thought was interesting Totally. Yeah. And I agree with that. Scheduling is, uh, is distracting. And what we aim to do in these groups is to react immediately, which is why it's helpful to have a larger group. Mm-hmm. Somebody posts the thumbs down. It's likely that somebody in the group will be able to react to that right now. Uh-huh. And it behooves the person to 
like that's putting the thumbs up to have that resource right now. You know, if it goes a certain period and no one has put a thumbs up there, you know, then it goes to the people who are like, okay, I see that no one has the resource right now. Um, I'm going to assume that I have the next resource, which is in an hour. Okay. Yeah. I'll check in and see if that's the next available. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though like it's the first person to uh, want to schedule. It's the first person that can actually react to it. Yeah. And yeah. we have like an agreement that like, if somebody says like, Hey, I can get you in a day, but then somebody comes right back and goes, do I can get you in an hour? Like we just do that now. Like yeah. whoever can get to it in an hour or first is the person. Yeah. Yep. I like that. That's and a, I also completely agree with you when it, go ahead. No, no, keep going. Keep going. Okay. I was going to say, I completely agree with you when it comes to advice. I have like so much to say on that. <laughs> go ahead. Let's hear and, it. Uh, this is important. So starting with like how we're interacting with one another, when we give advice, it's inherently disempowering because the root cause is that when I need somebody else's assistance, it's because there's a problem that I'm facing or a challenge that I'm trying to overcome that I I don't know how to do, right? And if I can know how to do it, then excellent. If I can figure out for myself how to do it, even better, because Mm -hmm. that will serve as a, a platform for me to have less future problems. But to the extreme degree, if like I call you every single time that I have a problem and you just tell me what to do, you are stealing competencies from me. I'm belaying those competencies onto you and thereby press ganging us into a codependent relationship where in which I get less resources personally because I have you know, less tools at my disposal and then become a problem more often. Absolutely. I love this. Keep going. Tell me more. So, so what I like to, what I like to try and um, do when somebody has an issue, and this is why it's really important that uh, people come from like backgrounds or like experiences. Let's say that you have a problem and we're going to use the analogy of you're in a hole, right? (laughs) And I'm at the top of this hole because I didn't fall into this challenge that you're in and you're in this hole. And I go, Hey man, like what you need to do is X, Y, and Z. (laughs) Well, first of all, I might be completely wrong because I don't know what actually is in that hole unless I've been there. (laughs) Secondly, how are you going to trust that I actually know what I'm talking about? If I'm just standing at the top of this hole and not actually looking at the actual problem that you're in, right? So rather than that, like I can say, okay, dude, I see that you're in a hole that's about this size and this depth. And I've been in a similar hole. I know how to get out of it. And not only do I know how to get out of it, but I'm willing to jump back into this one with you because I'm so confident that I can get out of it. Then I jump into it with you. Now, do I tell you right away, here's what you need to do? No. I just go, here's what I'm going to do. And I get out of the hole. Then I jump back in the hole with you. And I go, dude, I'm here. Let me see you do what I just did. Along the way, we'll have to ask a ton of questions about what this hole looks like and what you look like in the hole and what resources you have. And therefore get more of an empathetic, um, uh, you know, view of what you look like. Because if I'm over-resourced and I just jump in and jump out, like you might not be the same person at this time, right? So I've got to do it as though I'm you, which is an interesting one for climbing as an analogy. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah. So like, you know, I used to coach climbing and I used to coach kids climbing (laughs) and, you know, a kid would be looking at a climb, like, how do I do this? And I would do it. And they're like, all right, but you're six foot tall. I'm four foot five. I'm like, okay, cool. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do each move with my elbows 
you know, and I'm going to reach these holds and touch them elbow to elbow. And I'm going to put my knees on the hold instead of put my feet and hands. And you're going to see that the body mechanics are the same, regardless of how tall or short we are. Mm -hmm. And I'll do it the short way. Yeah, that's an interesting analogy for emotional holes. It's difficult to imagine how another person would deal with it. You know, they're not emotionally four foot five. I guess you can make that analogy, but it's harder to imagine that kind of thing, you know? Totally. But it it could be that like, instead of being emotionally four foot five, they've emotionally had their like leg cut off at the knee. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I've got two legs and I'm running around and I'm like, dude, this doesn't seem like a problem at all. And they're like, yeah, yeah. But my, my, my shin to foot is gone. And that would require you to be like, okay, let me get into this state. Let me tie up my leg for a moment and figure out what this problem actually looks like hobbling around on one leg. Mm -hmm. I think that this, um, this whole thing that we're kind of talking about this, the idea of emotional vulnerability and resilience through tight knit groups of a very specific size is really, really important. And as I talked to Rich, he pointed out my kind of obsession with scale. I was like, sweet. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, one to three and then three to eight. Okay, sweet. Like, how do we do 350 million? He's like, no, 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 stop. No, you got to, like, you got to build it up from the bottom. And I think that one of the things that he um, talks about a lot that I want to encourage you and Ben and the group that you're, that you've created to do is to do what you're doing, make it work really well and be loud about it and share it so that other people can copy you because um, it is more effective to make lots of small groups than to try to change a massive 350 million people all at once. Totally. I I totally believe that it's got to start from a smaller level. And I do agree with your friend, like, you know, if we're talking about building a, uh, a resilient society, that's got to start with resilient communities, which has to start with resilient, you know, uh, teams, which has to start with resilient people. Yeah. If you have a, a society full of unresilient people and you just apply all of these methods, they're not going to work. Yeah. But they're the same things like an individual person will be more resourced if they're diverse, just like an individual community will be more resilient if it's diverse. You know, a resilient person, if they're non-judgmental of themselves, will be more resilient, just like our group is more resilient being non-judgmental of all the individual members within it. Yeah, I think this is really important. This is a drum I've been banging on for quite a while that the change in society comes from the individual. There is no such thing as a revolution. This is an Osho quote that I'm badly quoting, but there is no social revolution. There is no labor revolution. There is only the revolution inside of yourself and a greater revolution is only emergent of millions of inner revolutions simultaneously. Totally. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really glad that you came on. I think that your perspective is nuanced and it's experienced through uh, some really exciting things. And uh, I love the tie to base jumping radical self-reliance and resilience in our communities is something that we absolutely need to curate. And I think that your lessons here today are super helpful. So thanks so much for coming on, Matt. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me uh, anytime, man. And uh, <laughs> thanks for uh, being the voice of, uh, of this kind of um, program. I'm, I'm excited to listen to the rest of the, uh, the rest of the rest of the shows that you put out. Yeah. Thanks so much, dude. Thanks so much. See you later, Matt. Later. Okay. You guys hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Matt is 
a rad person and I really appreciate him coming on. Those are some really tasty insights. If you like this podcast, share it, subscribe, leave a review and consider donating. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate that. Donate whatever feels good. Like I said, 100% listener supported podcast, baby. Let's keep it going. You guys stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. We've got a bunch of great stuff coming up on this podcast. Saturday, I am interviewing Dr. Zach Stein. He is an incredible author and educational philosopher. You can check out his work on whatisemerging.com. He just wrote an incredible article that went viral that is titled COVID-19, A War That Broke Out in Heaven. It's really, really important perspective, I think, right now. So check it out. I'll be interviewing him on Saturday. I look forward to getting that out to you guys. In the meantime, call your mom. Tell her you love her. Call your friends. Tell them that you're going to need their help and their support in the time to come and that you have their backs as well. You got to make those connections right now. It's really important. Okay? Love you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. If you want me If you need